Let's turn our attention to the word of the Lord and all that the Lord has in store for us this morning. Last week, we took a break from our regular verse-by-verse study through the New Testament to take a look at the account of Christ's birth found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. And I entitled the message, Christmas Dreams, and shared how Christmas is often considered a a time of dreams, associated with dreams, uh, of dream-making and of making dreams come true. Hopefully your Christmas was blessed and something that was a dream come true for you and yours. In our study, we noted how Joseph and Mary probably each had dreams of their own, dreams and desires to come together as one in marriage and to start a family of their own and to live a a peaceable life in the Lord. But something unexpected happened that changed their life dramatically. Mary was found to be with child. She was pregnant. Of course, this was something that could have turned into a nightmare. Pregnancies outside of marriage were seen as a disgrace, a very shameful thing. It was even punishable under the Old Testament law by death if uh, the husband or the betrothed uh, husband wanted to bring her before the authorities. Uh, That is what could happen. And so a very, very serious um, offense. Okay, And so... We, we read about how both Mary and Joseph, they lived and operated by faith. They trusted the Lord, and they didn't allow external fears of what others may say or do, nor internal fears of how it may mar their own image, keep them from trusting the Lord and being obedient to what he was calling them to. And we noted as well how in that dream Joseph had, the angel of the Lord told him that the name of the baby growing within Mary's womb would be Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. The name Jesus uh, means the Lord is salvation. Okay? And so when I started studying for last week's message, I noticed how the actual account of Jesus' birth and the surrounding events had a lot to do with dreams and desires. And I was going to cover all the different dreams, but quickly realized that I wouldn't be able to do so in one week. And so today you're going to get part two of the study that I was doing and kind of getting it all put together of our message, Christmas Dreams. So uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew once again. This morning we're going to be looking at the dreams, desires, and details that are found in chapter two, which are connected with some of the other events surrounding the birth of Christ. Uh, We will eventually get back to our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. We finished the book of Philippians. We're going to get into the book of Colossians soon, okay? Sometime in January, we'll see as the Lord leads and guides. The Lord's stirring something else on my heart, maybe even for next week, so we'll see. Uh, But we'll get there. Something a little special for us again this morning. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 2, and I actually would like to cover the whole chapter But for time's sake, I'm just going to get us started by reading the first 12 verses of our account. I'm going to read from my Bible, which is the New King James Version of the Bible. I want to encourage you all to follow along in your own Bible. Of course, if you need to borrow a Bible, there are some found underneath some of the chairs around you. Feel free to reach down and use one of those if you need, okay? We do think it's important that you're able to follow along in the Word and see what it says for your own self and be able to follow uh, through as we get into this. So, Everyone there? Matthew chapter 2? All right. Great. Will you all please rise in honor of the Lord and his word? 
As I already stated, I'd like to cover the whole chapter, but just to get us started, I'm going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 2. Matthew records for us the following details surrounding an event connected with the birth of our Savior and the celebration of Christmas. Take a look at verse 1. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. We'll pause right there. We're going to get through the whole chapter, but we're just going to stop there for uh, time's sake. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to once again look at a portion of Scripture uh, surrounding the events that kind of transpired in s- celebration and in response to the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we continue to celebrate Him every day, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, stir in our hearts a fresh set of eyes to look upon this text and understand what you desire to say to us today. Uh, Lord, I trust that you do have a word for each of us. And so, Lord, speak. Here we are, your children, wanting to hear from you, our Abba Father. And so, Lord, meet us in this place and do a wonderful work in us and through us. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our text this morning starts off with a few different important facts surrounding the birth of Jesus. Facts about location and timing. And we are given a landmarker of where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Okay, Bethlehem was a small city about five to six miles south uh, of Jerusalem. Bethlehem was the birthplace of King David of the Old Testament. And since Joseph was from the line of David, that is why he had to travel to Bethlehem in the first place for this census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus, which we can read about in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. We're given a time marker of when here as well. We're told that the birth of Jesus took place during the days of Herod the king. Now, this is a bit interesting. 
because historical records tell us that King Herod died in the year 4 B.C., which is a bit weird seeing as how the whole B.C. A.D. system was supposed to be set upon the birth of Jesus. B.C. stands for before Christ, while A.D. is Latin for Anno Domini, which is translated in English as in the year of the Lord. Dionysius, okay, a 6th century monk, was the one who introduced the A.D. system, and he did his best to determine the birth year of Jesus Christ based upon the records that he had access to, and it would seem that perhaps he was a bit off on his calculations if the secular information pertaining to Herod's death are to be trusted. And if that is true, we're probably looking at details of events that have taken place somewhere around the year 4 to 5 B.C. here in Matthew chapter 2. Now, not only do our opening verses give us some interesting facts about the birth of Jesus, they also introduce to us a group of very interesting people, a group of wise men from the east. What do we know about these wise men? Well, some things we know for sure because the Bible tells us. Uh, Other things have been passed down as part of tradition, and they may or may not be true. We know that the Greek word used here for wise men is magos. We use the English word magi to describe them. The Greek word magos is used only six times in the entire New Testament. Four of the six times are here in Matthew chapter 2 when referencing these wise men. The other two times this word is used is found in the book of Acts chapter 13 when describing a false prophet But there the word is translated as the English word sorcerer. And so, wise men, sorcerer, same Greek word. The Septuagint, which is a really fancy word for the Old Testament written in Greek. Uh, The Old Testament written in Greek, it connects this word to the wise men of Babylon that are spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Uh, These wise men of Babylon were associated with astrologers and sorcerers and magicians and those capable of interpreting dreams. We are told that these wise men were from the east. Where in the east? Well, that's debatable. Anything that was east of Israel is possible. Tradition says that the wise men were from the Orient. However, if you really consider it, this doesn't help since Orient really just means east okay uh we kind of translate uh the idea of something being oriental is is maybe uh asian but that's not really what the word actually means orient just means east so were they from the far east the near east the middle east we don't know they were just east of israel that's what we know for sure okay we note here in our text that these wise men knew about a coming king for the jews a Messiah, okay, the title King of the Jews was a very clear reference to the Messiah. Herod's response that we'll note later is proof that this is so. We're also told that they saw his star from their homes in the east. Now, the fact that they were looking up at the stars, it supports the idea that perhaps these men have been uh, or were astronomers or astrologers, stargazers of some kind. And, and something in the stars, we don't know what, there again are traditions and stories out there, okay? But something in the stars, as they watched them and mapped them out, indicated to them that a particular star was the king's star. Now, 
there was a prophecy mentioned by Balaam back in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, that connects the coming of the Messiah to a star. It reads, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. This star that will come out of Jacob is a reference to David and his seed that will come after him, the Messiah. And whether or not they were aware of this prophecy, we don't know. But if not, we're left to wonder what it was that clued them in to this star being his star. And the truth of the matter is that we just aren't told. This last uh, week, I think it was uh, uh, earlier, about a week and a half ago, there was some news reports about, you know, the nativity star shows up again, and it's really the pa Saturn and Jupiter. They kind of combine, and they look like this really big star on the sky. Was that how it happened? I don't know. Maybe. Um, we're, uh, we're not going to put a lot of stock into that because the Word of God doesn't tell us that. Okay? It's interesting. It's food for thought. Could it have been? Sure, it could have been. Could it have been something different? Yeah, it could have been. We don't know. Okay? We're told their objective, okay? that they came to worship the king of the Jews. Their dreams, okay? their desires, uh, if you will, their intent was to find the king of the Jews and to worship him. And we'll note more about their dreams and desires later, but for now I want to note how peculiar this is. Every indication is that these men were not Jews, so it would be odd for them to come and worship the king of the Jews. Also, most babies that were royalty were first identified as princes. The fact that a newborn child will be worshipped as a king, that too is a little bit odd. Though we are given some good details here, some facts pertaining to these wise men and their coming, the text still leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions that really pique my interest. As I study the word, I, I always like to read through it and kind of ask myself lots of questions, and it kind of helps just lead and, and guide me through it. And I was reading through this, and I just had a lot of questions. You know, how is it that these men from the East would know about the Messiah? How is it that they would know about a star that would indicate the Messiah? And, and why would Gentiles come to worship a, a Jewish child as king? You know, I believe there is a strong possibility that dreams played an important role in understanding the presence of these wise men in Jerusalem. As previously mentioned, the same Greek word used for the wise men in Matthew is found in the book of Daniel in the Septuagint. And there in the book of Daniel, we read about a different king and a dream that he had. It was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He had a dream that was very troubling to him. He called in the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell him his dream and its interpretation. And the Chaldeans asked Nebuchadnezzar to tell them the dream, and then they would then tell him the interpretation. But the king would not do so, and he demanded that they tell him the dream and its interpretation. And the Chaldeans, they responded, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, 
In response to the Chaldeans, King Nebuchadnezzar became angry and furious, and he commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now, among these wise men was a Jewish captive and his three friends, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, you may know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel and his friends were enlisted as part of the wise men of Babylon, and they were sentenced to be killed along with the other wise men. When Daniel found out, he asked the king for a little time to tell the king his dream and its interpretation, and he went back to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they sought the Lord together. And the Lord gave the revelation to Daniel, and he went before the king, and he said to the king, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers, they cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar that uh, what will be in the latter days. And then Daniel goes on to tell, the king tell King Nebuchadnezzar all the details of his dream and its interpretation. And when it was all said and done, King Nebuchadnezzar, he fell on his face prostrate before Daniel, and he declared, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since he could reveal this secret. And the king then promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel would have been seen as a hero to all the wise men of Babylon for saving their life from the death sentence pronounced upon them by King Nebuchadnezzar. And as a hero and as a chief administrator over all the wise men, it's not hard to believe that Daniel may have had a considerable amount of influence over them. As a prophet of the Lord, it is easy to see how he could have informed the wise men of Babylon about the coming king of the Jews. He could have very easily told them about the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, that spoke of a future star that would come out of Israel and signal a new king. He could have also informed them that this new king would be deity and worthy of their worship. Now, of course, Daniel's involvement is speculation. I do have to admit that, okay? The Bible doesn't tell us this explicitly. However, having Daniel inserted into the specula speculation does help to shed some potential light on the subject as to why these men would come to worship the king of the Jews. Well, the news of these wise men and their search for the king of the Jews was troubling to both Herod the king as well as the rest of Jerusalem. And so King Herod called together his own special group of wise men, just like King Nebuchadnezzar did, and he inquired of the chief priests and the scribes about where the Christ was to be born. And they had no problem answering King Herod's inquiry, for they knew the scriptures, and they attested that it was Bethlehem was the place where he would be born. And they quoted from Micah, the minor prophet, where it is recorded, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Here in our text, I believe we see another very important, a critical aspect of Jesus' coming that I believe was all part of God's desire of what God hoped for in sending his son 
on Christmas. You know, last week we emphasized Jesus' role as Savior, how his name Jesus spoke of his mission to save us from our sins. But that isn't all that Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to save us, but he also came to shepherd us. God's word tells us that part of the plan for sending Jesus that first Christmas was that he would shepherd God's people. God didn't send his son just to save us. He also sent us his son that he may lead us, that he may care for us, that he may guide us through our lives like a shepherd who cares for and guides their flock through the fields. If we only understand Christmas as being God sending a Savior, well, we are missing out on a very important piece of God's entire plan. We're missing a whole other element that is extremely vital to us all. You see, Jesus does, just doesn't want us to look at him as our, as Jesus doesn't just want us to look at him as our Savior. He also wants us to look to him as our shepherd as the one who will lead and guide us through our lives. There is more to the Christian life than just getting saved. Once we're saved, we then must look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and allow him and his word to lead us through the rest of our days. So Christmas is about having Jesus as Savior and Shepherd. It's about him coming to be both Lord and Savior of our lives. Well, after Herod got his intel from the chief priests and scribes, he secretly called the wise men to himself, and he sent them on their way to Bethlehem, saying to them, go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring word to me that I may come and worship him also. This, of course, was a lie, okay? Uh, Herod had no intention No desire whatsoever to worship Jesus, but we'll get more into that later in our text. So the wise men departed, and as they did, they once again saw the star that had led them from the east to Jerusalem, and this time the star led them right to where the young child was, and they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now I want you to notice something. Not a a big deal, okay, but do notice that Jesus is in a house, okay, and not a manger, And that Jesus is a young child, not a babe, okay? Based upon when the star appeared and what Herod would eventually do leads us to believe that Jesus is more than likely a toddler at this time, okay? Probably about two years old. And so I bring this up so that you'll all know better than to put your wise men next to baby Jesus in your nativity scene, okay? It's just not biblical, okay? So don't do it. If you're going to have the wise men, have them on the other side of the house. If you really want to be biblical, east, okay, of wherever they're at, okay, then that is a good nativity scene, okay, and you're not misleading anybody uh, or making any mistakes, okay. The wise men weren't there uh, with the shepherds and the babe in the manger, okay, just so you know. When the wise men entered the house, we read that they fell down and they worshiped Jesus, They humbled themselves, and they fell before a child in worship. And and what a great example they are to us in their humility and in their worship. 
as our shepherd and leader, God wants us to humble ourselves before him, to submit ourselves and our lives to his leading and to his guiding. He wants us to come before him in worship and in adoration, not because he needs it, but because we need it. We need to understand our complete dependence upon Him, our need for Him to be our Lord. You see, if we didn't worship Jesus, we would worship something else, something not worthy of our affection, something not worthy of our adoration, something that would leave us empty and unfulfilled. God wants us to come to Him and worship because He alone can satisfy our need. He alone is worthy of our worship and our submission. The dreams of these wise men came true that night when they finally found the king of the Jews and they fell to the ground in worship. And, and to me, I think it's just a beautiful picture of what Christmas is also about. Christmas is about worshiping Jesus as Lord, okay? as the ruler of our lives, as the shepherd. It's about coming before him humbly and with awe and with reverence and with adoration. As they worshiped Jesus, they opened up their treasures and they presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These gifts were worthy of a king and they would be used for fulfilling God's purposes and plans for Joseph and Mary. As we'll see later in our text, Joseph and Mary are going to be forced to move. It's very probable that the gifts these wise men provided the means necessary for such a trip this Christmas season. I think something for us to consider and to ponder is what gifts do we have to offer to the Lord? What treasures do we have? What talents, what gifts and abilities can you offer to Jesus as an act of worship and surrender to his lordship? Just as God would use the gifts brought by the wise men to accomplish his will for Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus, so too the Lord can use the gifts that you bring to him to accomplish his will in your life and in the lives of those around you. This section, it closes with the wise men being divinely warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed for their own country another way. After their dreams and desires of finding the king of the Jews and worshiping him were fulfilled, the Lord came to them in an actual dream, and he warned them not to go back to Herod, and they went home a different way, fulfilled and satisfied and in awe of what they had found in Jesus. Well, let's turn our attention to the next section of this morning's text as we read about yet another dream. Read with me verses 13 through 15. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. After the wise men left, Joseph had yet another dream where an angel of the Lord appeared to him, telling him to take the child Jesus along with Mary, his wife, and flee to Egypt. For the Lord knew that Herod would come after the child to try and destroy him. Now, this is interesting to me. Joseph and Mary, they have been obedient to the Lord thus far. 
They've been asked to trust the Lord and His plan and have done so by faith. And yet, here we see that even though they were being obedient, even though they were submitted to the Lord and they were trusting in Him, they still faced hardship. They still faced difficulties. They still faced danger in their walk with the Lord. You know, some people have the wrong idea of what it means to walk with the Lord and to yield to His Lordship. Some people are given the erroneous idea that somehow living a life of faith and coming to faith in Jesus Christ is meant to be some sort of pass in life. Like now that I'm a Christian, everything's just going to be easy and great and, and wonderful and I'll never have another problem in my life, you know? Come to Jesus. He'll make your life better. But that's not what the Scriptures teach us, okay? Um, That is not what the gospel message is. Okay? That isn't what is promised for those who come to Christ through faith and live under his lordship and his leading and guiding. In fact, the opposite of that is actually true. That is actually promised. The scriptures actually tell us that wanting to live a holy life, a godly life, and a life yielded to the Lord will bring about persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, uh, states that we have been appointed to afflictions. Okay. Jesus sent out his disciples and he said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. He instructed his disciples, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And he promised, in the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And truly, that is the gospel message that we believe upon and submit our lives to. As a follower of Jesus, we will experience tribulation. But Jesus has overcome the world. We're no longer living for the world and the things of this world. We are living for heaven. Jesus overcame the world. He died upon the cross of Calvary, was buried in a tomb, but three days later he rose from the grave, defeating sin, death, and all that this world could throw at him. He overcame, and with him as our lead, with him as our shepherd, we can trust him to lead us out of harm's way, out of the traps and snares and dangers that this world wants to set for us. Will it always be easy? No. Okay. Will we face difficulties, trials, tribulations, and persecutions for our faith in Jesus? Yes. Okay. But He has overcome them all, and He can lead us through it all. Psalm 23 attests, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Through this dream of Joseph's, we see the guiding, shepherding heart of the Lord, leading them through the valley of the shadow of death. He knew of the danger that was ahead. 
and he led them to a place of safety, a place where they could escape the wrath of Herod. And living a life of faith in the Lord is about letting him lead us through the dangers of this world and trusting him to get us through safely to the other side, ultimately to heaven. Now, in response to the dream and in continued obedience to the Lord, Joseph arose, took the child and his mother by night, departed for Egypt, and they waited there until the death of Herod. We also see here that this dream is something that God used to fulfill his own prophetic word of how his son would be called out of Egypt. Take a look at what happens next in our text. Read verses 16 through 18. There it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. When Herod discovered that the wise men were not coming back to him, he was outraged, okay, exceedingly angry, our text tells us. Now, it's interesting that Matthew writes of how Herod felt like he had been deceived, but really it was Herod who was being deceptive, right? It was Herod who deceptively tried to get the wise men to lead him to the child of Christ so that he could destroy him. Okay, he told the wise men that he, too, wanted to come and worship the king of the Jews, but nothing could have been further from the truth. He wanted to destroy Jesus, not worship him. And there are a few things we need to know about this king called Herod to better understand the situation being described before us in our text. You see, Herod was put in place by the Romans as a governor first in Galilee, uh, where he quickly established himself in the region and was later given the title of King of Judea, where he was in direct control of the Jewish people. As he reigned as king, he always did his best to keep his relationship with the Roman leadership favorable. Okay, he did a lot of rebuilding and would often uh, rename cities after Roman leaders. Herod greatly desired to be accepted by the Jewish people, and so he did things to try and impress the Jewish community as well. He was an incredible builder. Okay, some of his projects are still standing today, and you can go see them. They're very impressive. And one of his greatest building projects, at least to the Jews, was the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. But even though he did projects for the Jews, they never really did accept him as their king. One thing they had against him was the fact that in order to pay for all these incredible building projects, he had to heavily tax the people, okay, and... The people, of course, didn't like that. I don't think anybody says, yeah, I want to be heavily taxed. Uh, so nobody likes that. And so that kind of put a, a little bit of a damper on it. But another thing, really, that was, you know, that piece that they just could not get over was that Herod was actually of Edomite descent. He was actually from the line of Esau. And ever since Jacob and Esau were born, there has been animosity between them. There has been fighting between them. It will, has been going on since then, and it will continue to go on even today. The Jews were never really able to look beyond the fact that he was an Edomite ruling over them as Jews. Now, history, not the Bible, but history tells us of this man that he was not only a great builder, but that he was relentless 
towards any that would dare think of opposing him or usurping his authority. History gives us a lesson on how he killed, actually killed some of his own wives and some of his very own children because he suspected them of a coup. Basically, he was very paranoid and he thought, my wife and kids are getting together and they're going to try and oust me. And so he had his own family members executed. He was paranoid over the thought of anyone trying to come in and usurp his place of position and priority. For Herod, he was the king, and there wasn't any room on the throne for anyone else. There was no room in his life for Jesus to be his Lord. Jesus was only seen as a hindrance to his own dreams and desires to rule over the Jews himself. And Herod pictures for us all those who see themselves as kings of their own life, of those who are the captains of their own ships, of those who have no room for others to lead and guide them. These kinds of people will not yield. They will not submit. They alone sit upon the throne of their hearts, and anyone that dares to remove them from that throne is seen as a threat and as an opposition. Herod's own dreams and desires of being king over the Jews would not allow Herod to yield to the Lord. They kept him from responding in an appropriate way and led him to do an outrageously horrible, horrible thing, sending people into Bethlehem and ordering the destruction of all little children who were two years of age and under. Listen, don't, don't let your own dreams, don't let your own desires keep you from yielding to the Lord and submitting your life to Him. Okay? I guarantee you, okay, I guarantee you that what he has planned for you will be infinitely better than any of your dreams and aspirations. You know why I know that? Because heaven is eternal. And life here is temporal. It's short-lived. Don't live for the fleeting pleasures and riches of this world, but instead live for the fulfilling and satisfying and blessed life of heaven. Surrender all your hopes and dreams to the Lord and watch him do amazing and miraculous things. Well, let's take a look at the final verses of the chapter as we note two more dreams that came to Joseph. He follow along in verses 19 through 23. It says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord once again appeared in a dream, to Joseph, and this time instructed Joseph to return to Israel for the immediate threat of King Herod had passed. He had died, and it was time for them to go back to Israel. And once again, we see that Joseph was obedient. Okay? He arose, he took the young child, uh, Jesus, along with his mother, and he returned to Israel. But upon arriving in Israel, Joseph was alarmed to discover that Herod's son, Archelaus, was reigning over Judea, and he was afraid to enter into that land. No doubt... Hey, Herod had told his son Archelaus about the threat to his throne, the king of the Jews. Uh, Archelaus would certainly do whatever he could do to remain in power as well. 
So what was Joseph to do? God told him to go back to Israel, but there's still a descendant of King Herod upon the throne over Judea. What was he to do? And that's when we see that once again, Joseph was visited by God in yet another dream. And he was warned about not living in the region of Judea. And so instead of moving back to Judea, Joseph took the child and Mary and moved back to where they had originally started out, back in Nazareth, where they had lived before the census was ordered. Now, in this little section, there are a few things that stand out to me that I want to make note of. One thing, okay, that is interesting to me is that the angel in the first dream didn't reveal to Joseph the full details of what God had planned and intended. And I find that interesting. The angel simply told them that it was time to go back to the land of Israel, but didn't tell Joseph where to go specifically. We know from the text that God's desire was for them to go to Nazareth, okay? It was part of God's prophetic word that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And so why didn't the angel simply tell them to go to Nazareth in the first place? Why not reveal to them the full details of where to go specifically in Israel? Perhaps there would have been some concern on behalf of Mary and or Joseph on returning to Nazareth. Because we have to remember the conditions that they were in prior to them leaving Nazareth in the first place. You see, when they left Nazareth, they were a betrothed couple that were found to be with child, pregnant. Okay? As we noted already, this was a serious offense, one that was punishable by death and one that was seen as shameful and disgraceful. And I do wonder if Mary and Joseph would even be hesitant to leave Egypt if the angel would have told them, well, go straight to Nazareth. Another thing I think that is interesting is the fact that God's continued direction from the second dream didn't come until after Joseph was obedient to the first dream. Joseph had to be obedient to the first dream to leave Egypt and return to Israel before being given the second dream telling him to avoid Judea. Joseph needed to be obedient to step one before being given step two. A third thing. That interests me is that in the second dream, Joseph wasn't told to go to Nazareth, but to simply avoid Judea. He was warned of the danger in Judea, and it would seem that it was Joseph that decided to try to head to Galilee and ultimately to the city of Nazareth. Joseph had to make these decisions on where to go to. He was simply told to leave Egypt and return to Egypt, but where, you know, there were a lot of places that he could have gone to in the land of Israel. His first inclination was to go back to the land of Judea, but that wasn't where the Lord wanted him to go, and so that didn't work out. His next inclination was to go to Nazareth, which is where the Lord wanted him to go from the beginning. I bring these up because I think there are a lot of parallels for us to consider in our own life as we yield and surrender our lives to Jesus. You see, the life that we live is a life of faith. We live by taking steps of faith, by trusting the Lord, by, by moving as we feel like he's leading and guiding. We take steps of faith, not knowing all the details of what God's going to do and where God's plan will ultimately lead. Okay? We take steps of faith, not knowing what God will ask of us next. We're asked to simply be obedient to one step before given, being given the next step. We take steps of faith as we best discern the Lord's leading. And we may take steps of faith that the Lord isn't in. And listen, 
that is okay. Okay? We trust him to course correct for us when we do so. God isn't looking for perfection in our steps of faith. Okay? He's looking for action. He's looking for us to be willing to actually take a step. Okay? We will sometimes get, in, get it wrong when we step out, and, and that is okay. Brothers and sisters, that's all right. That's part of living a life of faith. We feel like, oh, I think God's telling us to do this. And we pursue something, we go, and then we realize, oh, God is not in this. This was not it. God doesn't look at us and say, like, oh, you, you big dummy, why'd you do that? Okay? No, he's like, okay, yeah, just keep on taking these steps of faith. And he's drawing us, and he's drawing us closer and closer to himself. All of these things are a description of what it means to live a life of faith, to trust God, to lead us, and to guide us along the way. You know, I know that for me, in my walk with the Lord, I can relate to these things, and I hope that you can as well. You know, I had no idea whatsoever that taking a step of faith to move to Japan would ultimately lead me to the place that I am today. God didn't give me all the details either, okay? And I'm glad that he didn't because I probably never would have left in the first place. Just being honest, okay? I thought I was going to Okinawa to help out a friend who was in need of someone to faithfully serve in simple, practical ministry. I had no idea that God would one day call me to be a senior pastor of a church in mainland Japan. That was never my intent or desire. I just wanted to serve the Lord faithfully and, and be a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. And if I would have known this is what God was going to do, I probably never would have left the States in the first place. And so that's why God just said, I'm just going to get you here, and then I'll get you to the next place, and then the next place. And then all of a sudden it's like, how did I get here, Lord? Uh, you know, and, and God's leading and guiding. You know, as I took steps of faith and followed the Lord, he opened the doors for more and more ministry opportunities. As I was faithful to take one step, then God would re then reveal to me what was the next step. And there were times, I'll tell you, more often than what I probably would like to admit to, I took some missteps along the way. But God didn't give up on me. And he continued to draw me and to lead me to where I am today. Okay, and I'm going to continue to try and operate by taking steps of faith. And I'm going to continue to probably blow it from time to time. And God's going to continue to be gracious and to lead and to guide. I don't know what God has next. I don't know what God's going to do in this coming year. But one thing I do know is that I can trust God to lead and guide the way. And that is something that's true for each and every one of us. Jesus declares to us that he is the good shepherd. And his promise is, or he proclaims, I know my sheep and am known by my own. Jesus further declared, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. In this life of faith, Jesus goes before us as our good shepherd. He leads us and he guides us. He leads us through the shadow of the valley of death, through the dangerous areas and he sees us through to the other side. He leads us from one place to the next. Listen, the sheep... They don't worry about whether or not the shepherd knows what he's doing. They simply trust him to lead them to the place they need to be. They have learned to recognize the voice of the shepherd and his calling. They've learned that the following his voice always leads them to the place they need to be. 
may our lives be a demonstration of what it looks like to allow Jesus to be the shepherd of our lives, to be the one we submit to, the one we yield to, the one we worship and adore, the one we trust to lead us and to guide us throughout life's journeys. These Christmas dreams, they teach us that not only is Christmas about Jesus being our Savior, which is awesome and that's wonderful and that's glorious, but it is also about Jesus being with us as our shepherd, as our leader, as the one who goes before us, the one we are yielded to and submitted to for the rest of our days. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are Jesus. You are both Lord and Savior. You're not just Savior and then just save us and then we do whatever we want, try and figure out life on our own, Lord. You're not just Savior, or excuse me, you're not just Lord kind of mandating things to us, Lord. You are our Lord and Savior. You've saved us from the penalty of our sins, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for coming and, and being born as a babe as we celebrate that in Christmas, and Christmas is totally uh, about you as Savior, Lord, but it's also about you as shepherd, as the one who would lead us and guide us through this life. You just don't want us to get saved, Lord. You want us to, to follow after you all the days that we have here on this earth and for all the rest of eternity in heaven. And so, Lord, I pray that we all would know you in those ways, that we would know you both as Lord and as Savior, that you would lead us and guide us, that you would save us from the penalty of our sins. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.